Father, this is your word. And thank you for your word. And I pray that you'd be glorified as your word is preached today, as we are edified by these words from Isaiah chapter 5. And Lord, as we look to you for wisdom as we do that, as we look to you for strength, you say in your word, Lord, as we are reminded in our catechism today, your word have I hid in my heart so I may not sin against you. Help us to have this mindset as we come to your word. And God, we just, we just pray that you'd be glorified as we are gathered here today, as we listen to your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. You might be wondering why I'm up here today. Um, yeah, Pastor Chris isn't feeling well. So, uh, yeah, again, this is what we do, right? Uh, whoever stands up here, this is the word of the Lord that we're edified together by his word, um, not by the people who preach or speak up here. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to go through this passage together. Um, and bear with me as a servant of the Lord here. So it's April, and this means that the season of growing is approaching. And as we watch outside, right, you've seen the snowbanks shrink. Farmers are watching runoff and soil moisture. We're getting ready to start putting things in the ground. Gardeners, I know my wife wants to garden soon uh, when we build our raised garden boxes uh, at our house this spring. But we're planning ahead to garden this year. I know that at least a few of you are doing that as well. Those of you who farm or garden know that some years are good. Some years are bad, but as a whole, you learn about how plants work and what kind of soil you have. And you should be able to expect a certain result right, from your work. In that, if you've got good seed and good soil, and you manage moisture and fertilizer just right, and no big storm or drought interferes, of course, you know how to produce a good crop. But what if you couldn't? What if you couldn't? What if you had a patch of ground and a bunch of plants which, no matter what you did, refused to produce a good crop? How much work would you keep putting into them? And at what point would you say, I'm done. I've done enough. I'm going to walk away. Some of these questions help us approach our passage today here in Isaiah chapter 5. And it forms the third section of Isaiah's prologue, right? We've been talking about this the past three weeks. So Isaiah 1 to 5 uh, is a preface Right, Chapters 2 to 4 that we looked at last week is part of that. You'll see some ideas flow from that as well. But here, Isaiah's prologue, formally, uh, before the book formally starts in chapter 6, this chapter has two main parts to it. The first one, in verses 1 to 7, which we read here, is a song. Again, like 
we sang about today is a song about a vineyard. Yet it's a very symbolic song that Isaiah sings about the vineyard and the one who grows things in that vineyard as well. And towards the end of the song, in verse 7, if you look there, Isaiah explains the meaning of the song, who it's really about. Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And for the rest of the chapter, Isaiah sets aside these symbols and speaks directly to Judah about what this song was talking about. So here's our first point of observation here in this passage. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, the song. Hey, note takers, that's the heading there, the song. But as we start with the song, we, we, we see, like we've seen already, it's a song about a vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song, concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Vineyards, we know, is where grapes were grown. These vineyards were all over the land of Israel and Judah. They still are today. And Chris, as he has said here, has taken a tour of vineyard in southern Ontario once, and it blew him away just how much time and work and artistry goes into caring for these vines and producing the wine that comes from those grapes. And that's the care and attention that Isaiah describes in this song. Verse 2 tells us he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. When he says he dug it and cleared it of stones, he, he made sure there was nothing to get in the way of these vines growing. He planted it with choice vines. Not only was the soil fertile, but he picked the best plants to grow there. Already anybody who knows anything about vineyards, not me, as you learned about last week, but uh, should be expecting this vineyard to grow really good grapes. And verse 2 goes on by telling us that he built a watchtower in the midst of it, in the middle of it. Now here we're talking about luxury Whoever planted this vineyard was so rich and could very well afford to build a tower and pay someone to stand in that tower to keep watch over the vineyard, chasing away wild animals or intruders who steal or could potentially hurt these good grapes. Then he says, he hewed out a wine vat in it. This was another luxury item here, a place for long-term storage of the wine right there in the vineyard. And we know from verse 5, if you look in verse 5, that he put a hedge and a wall around it to keep wild animals and other people out. The picture here is that this vineyard owner just went all out. He spared no expense as he made long-term investments into this fertile vineyard. Doing everything right, by the book, right, to ensure a good crop. But the main point is here that he has high expectations. Anybody who knows anything about vineyards, again, is expecting to hear 
that this vineyard produced a bumper crop of award-winning grapes, and everyone is happy. But instead, this verse finishes up by telling us that he looked for it to yield grapes. In verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He came to harvest the fruit, and instead he found wild, unripe fruit. The word here for wild grapes is related to the word for stink, uh, apparently, and it literally means stink fruit. You ever heard of that? (laughs) He expected a good crop, and what this grew was wild, stinky fruit. That's how we could summarize that up. But it's as if he had done nothing. All of this effort was wasted, and these grapes did no better than if they'd been planted by accident somewhere on the side of the road. But now maybe you're thinking, what if he's missed a step? What if there was something more he could have done that he didn't. Yet the people listening to this, the people listening to Isaiah, they all knew about growing grapes. And they would have known that there was nothing more that he could have done. And that's what verses 3 and 4 tell us. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? He asks two questions. What more could he do? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. And the second question here is why did it grow sink fruit? instead of actual grapes. And that goes without an answer. He leaves the people to think about that and chew on that for themselves for a while. Because in verse 5 and 6, he tells us what he will do next. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The idea here is that he's going to let this go back to being wild ground. He's going to remove its hedge so that wild animals can come in and eat the fruit. He's going to remove the wall so that people can just stomp through as if it was public property. That's why we're building a fence this spring in my house. People do that a lot. But Verse 6 says that he's not going to prune the vines or till the ground or remove weeds. That's what that verse is saying. And this beautiful vineyard is going to become like any other patch of wild ground. And finally... Here we see that this vineyard owner must be God. He's going to make sure no rain falls on it, as we've read here. 
Now you might be thinking, as I am right now, that this sounds a little bit harsh, or maybe very harsh, but we should understand that all he's doing here is treating this vineyard the way it needs to be treated, or it's asking to be treated. If it's just going to grow wild grapes, he's going to treat it like a patch of wild ground. No farmer would keep putting so much work into a piece of land that only grew stink fruit. So this beautiful vineyard is going to turn back into a patch of wild ground because that's all it ever really was. He's going to treat it according to its crop. And so when we get to verse 7 here, where Isaiah explains the point of this song, this parable of the vineyard. We, we find the vineyard, right, is Israel, the people of Israel and Judah. And knowing that, we understand that this song is an invitation for us to reflect on everything that God had done for his people in the 500 to 600 years since he brought them out of Egypt when Isaiah's ministry happened, right? So he, he, he had rescued them. Again, last week we touched on some of these things. In Exodus 19, he'd rescued them, bore them on eagles' wings, and brought them to himself into covenant relationship with him and gave them his word and saved them from their enemies time and time and time again. They had a perfect law. They had the most amazing blessings. Right? You read about that in Deuteronomy as well. And the most terrifying curses to motivate them. I believe it's Deuteronomy 28. But they had judges and kings who saved them time and time again. We read about that throughout the Old Testament. They had every opportunity a people group could need. And God looked to this people, his people, to find the righteousness that they should have produced, right, in keeping with this image here, the righteousness that they produced with all of his care. As verse 7 says, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In Hebrew here, the word justice and outcry, uh, bloodshed, sorry, rhyme with each other. Uh, we, we've seen this throughout uh, the Old Testament as well uh, in our past sermons. There, there's this play of words that happen. This is why I think puns are biblical, and that's my basis for puns. Um, maybe I should think of puns on the spot. But no, uh, in Hebrew, the words for justice and bloodshed rhyme with each other, as do the words righteousness and outcry. So this emphasizes this irony. Yet a sad one, right? a sad irony between what the people should have produced and what they actually produced. And by the time of Isaiah's day, Jerusalem should have been the most godly, should have been the most peaceful city in the world, filled with people who knew God and were leading the nations in his ways. Again, flowing from our passages last week in Isaiah 2-4. to but as we've seen in the past two weeks, it had become a place of idols and pride and wickedness and oppression, murder, people crying 
out for help as others oppressed them, as the leaders themselves of Judah and Jerusalem oppressed them. And so this song warns the people, this is what's going to happen. God is going to treat this vineyard, his people, the way they're asking to be treated since they're acting like every other nation around them. To be specific, the wicked and pagan nations around them. He's going to remove his protection from them and allow the big superpowers of Assyria and Babylon to stomp all over them, just like they stomped all over any other country in the world. And we know this judgment came when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in Isaiah's lifetime. It came when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Judah a few decades after Isaiah's death. Well, this judgment didn't come, so his hearers would have seen, oh, this is going to happen, but not in the near future yet. It happened again when Rome destroyed uh, Jerusalem again uh, 800 years later in AD 70. So this song gives the people of Jerusalem and Judah this stark warning of what's coming, and the questions ringing in their minds from this song is, what more could God have done? What other opportunities could he have given them, his people? What chances did his people not have? Those are some of the questions. Yet the answer remains the same, nothing, none. There is nothing that God should have done that he had not done for them. And with that question ringing in their minds and with it being in the air, the first section of chapter 5 here comes to a close. This is the song of the vineyard. And that's a little bit of the emotional center of Isaiah. But here we get to the next part, verse 8 onwards. And we see this stink fruit that was touched on in the first section there. The chapter still has 23 more verses, and what Isaiah does in the rest of this chapter is describe in very literal language, right? We just saw this symbolic picture. Now he's very literal in his language about this stink fruit that's growing on the vine of Israel in Judah. And maybe the people were listening to this and said, what do you mean by this stink fruit? I think we're doing pretty good. Right? Again, judgment wasn't going to come, but in their minds, what are we doing wrong? And so verse 8 and following goes on in detail and tells why this rotten stink fruit was the people and that they were producing that with their lives. And the main way that Isaiah introduces this stink fruit is with the statements that start in the following verses there. Having them highlighted, it says, woe. There are six statements. Uh, if you look in verse 8, Uh, Verse 11, verse 18, 20, and 
But what was the word often used by prophets that indicate this coming judgment or coming curse? It's the opposite of blessing. Like when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, a statement of woe is the opposite of that. Cursed are those who blank. When the prophets say woe to someone, they're saying that you are sinful, you are wretched, even though you might be rich or comfortable at that time. Your worst life is about to come when judgment from God comes. That's what that word woe indicates. So Isaiah describes the stink fruit of wickedness produced by God's people by these six statements of woe. So here we get into the woes. First, verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Here's the idea behind this. Back in the days of Joshua, the land of Israel was divided up. Again, we talked about this in our series in Joshua. But each family received a portion as an inheritance. And there were laws in place to make sure that the inheritance stayed with their family. They got poor, had to sell their land to get out of debt. Every 50 years, there was this year of jubilee where the land would go back to the original owners. And by Isaiah's day, again, 500 to 600 years later from that time, nobody was obeying these laws anymore. So you had rich guys buying more and more land, expanding their estates further and further until they had no neighbors because they owned everything that they could see, essentially. And the result was that the poor of the land had nowhere to live, and they had to beg outside the temple instead of living with their families in their ancestral lands. This was one example of the stink fruit that Isaiah saw in his day. Second woe is verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. This is a woe to the party animals. God had no problem with his people enjoying wine in moderation, but these people had moved way past that. This verse tells us that alcohol is what got them out of bed in the morning. And alcohol was what kept them out of bed that evening. Their parties were out of this world, but they didn't pay any attention to God. This is what this verse is saying. The third woe is in verse 18 here. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. These are people who are not sinning by accident. They're working hard, because they want what's on the other end, essentially. If someone's pulling something up with a rope, it's on purpose. 
And what these people are doing with sin is eagerly working to get new opportunities or, or fresh opportunities at sin or to sin. And all the while, as they do this, they say in a bit of a sarcastic mode, sure, let's see what God's up to these days. Let's see if he notices. Essentially, is what they're saying. And we see the fourth woe is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, these people don't know the difference between good and evil anymore. Right? They see a wicked thing and they call it good. They see a good thing and they call it a wicked thing. We see an example of this today in our government when they, who, who supports the murder of babies? They, they don't count it as that. But they call it the right to choose. My body, my choice. And then points to pregnancy centers who are actually telling women the truth and call them liars. You're dishonest. And this kind of thing is exactly what we see happening here in Israel and Judah, just as much as our world today. So we see a lot of things back then and today that apply to these situations. Woes to them and woes to our world today. Fifth woe is in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Have you ever met someone who thinks they've figured everything out? As in, I know everything, and I think the, the best thing for you to do is to just put your Bible away and listen what I have to say. That's, that's the sin of Eve, right? We talked about this in our catechism here. Who lusted, lusted, desired so much after this fruit because it was desirable to make her wise. She didn't want God's wisdom. She wanted to be wise apart from God. The one created in the image of God wanted to create God in image and Israel and Judah were full of these people and Isaiah says woe to you woe to all of you and the sixth woe finally says woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine Valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of what is right or of his right. This final woe is a bit of a double whammy, right? On the one hand, we're headed back, as I was reading this, oh, we're headed back to the party animals. But these people are also bartenders now, right? They don't give a rip about justice anymore. They care deeply about their drinks. 
that they'd turn around and let a guilty person go free just for a bit of cash. And they wouldn't look twice when the innocent person is being oppressed. That's the message here. This is what God sees when he looks at the people of Israel in Judah. After centuries and centuries of caring for them and speaking to them or rescuing them and giving them far better than what they deserve or ever will deserve, this is the crop that comes out of them. Oppression of the poor, wild parties, deliberate disobedience, and unbelief, messed up morals, pride, injustice. In other words, they were no better than the pagan nations around them. Just a bunch of wild grapes. That's what this is saying. And here we get to the final part of this chapter as it's structured. We go from the woes, the statements of judgment, to the judgment. Here's a third point of observation here. We looked at the song, and then we looked at the woes, statements of judgment. Now we're going to look at the judgment. This is what God's going to do about these woes. Isaiah has said them when we put together with that song of the vineyard in verses 1 to 7, something terrible is coming. Right? And interspersed with these woes, God tells us exactly what that is what that judgment is going to look like. Again, recapping here, verse 9, we read that those big houses that they built were going to be left empty, suggesting rich people would be killed or taken into exile, yet those big fields are going to be stricken by a drought and produce no crops. Look at verse 13. It tells us that people will go into exile, hungry, thirsty. Then verse 14 speaks of Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, who will swallow up many. In other words, a lot of people are going to die. Yet in verses 15 to 16, that's what these songs were centered on today. Man is humbled, each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. You'll notice the connections again in chapter 3 and 4. Those same words are uh, repeated. And verse 16 says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. God is going to win over all this idolatry and all of this pride and arrogance that we've been seeing. He's going to prove himself holy, mighty, glorious. He's going to do it. And verse 17 describes our fields, right? And pastures and homes becoming ruins and wild places where nomads will come through with their flocks. In verse 24, it says, Therefore, they will be consumed and destroyed. Like dry grass in a fire, as dry grass sinks down in the flame, right? Because they've rejected God's law, because they've ignored His words. As a matter of fact, hated his words. Verse 25 tells us there's an earthquake coming. The mountains quake, right? He stretched his out, hand out against them. The mountains quake. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. 
In ancient Israel, we see that they bury their people, right? So the opposite of that would have been humiliating. It would have been shameful. Not being buried. To have your dead body left out in an open grave or or just on the road. uh, To be eaten by animals. That was an awful type of judgment. A curse, if you will. Yet God brought this judgment upon the people And in fact, there's some evidence of an actual earthquake, apparently, of that back in Isaiah's day. And yet, as verse 25 concludes, for all his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. So here the chapter finishes with this climactic judgment as the Enemies of Israel, the other armies that come to take the people into exile. And look at verse 26 here. He will raise a signal for nations far away, whistle for them from the ends of the, herd, of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily, they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumber or sleep, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hooves sim like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like lion, like young lions. They roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. These words in their poetic structure say that obviously these nations are coming to conquer. This could point to the Assyrians who conquered Israel and posed a major threat in Judah in Isaiah's lifetime. But this could point to the Babylonians as well who destroyed Jerusalem a hundred years later or so after Isaiah's ministry. But in either case, the message is clear. Judgment is coming. And God, the owner of this vineyard, the start of the chapter, is the one raising the banner for these advancing armies to come and judge his people. Have you ever thought of this? God using nations, pagan and wicked nations, God just using wicked to judge his people. We see that all throughout scripture. And this wasn't a new message. 500 or 600 years before through Moses, God said, this is what would happen if you rebel against me. Isaiah simply repeats the message that God has not changed. Right? This is where we see things about God. God is constant, never changing. That's why judgment is coming. And he will be exalted in justice and prove that he is holy and righteous. And that there's no way out of that. So this is how Isaiah 5 ends. And this, this is a heavy message. I was trying to pick songs this week, and I said, Chris, what's what's some great songs on God's judgment? (laughs) The previous two messages in Isaiah, um, as I've shared in that as well, have been pretty heavy. 
But they both ended, or at least all of them, have included this message of hope, this glimmer of grace here. But here in Isaiah 5, the third and final prophecy of Isaiah's prelude or introduction, it's simply just judgment. That it ends there. Of doom and woe and all that is part of this judgment. That's it. So the question here for us today, is that it? Is there any hope? Any grace? Is there light at the end of this tunnel? These are important questions to think about and ask as we read this, because it's important for Isaiah's listeners back then to not just presume on grace, even though they're a corrupt vineyard, to not just think that they can do whatever they want because God's going to save them anyways, right? But this chapter forces them to deal with the consequences of their wickedness and these coming consequences, right? But you and I know that this wasn't it. Praise the Lord for the rest of his word we see in the Old and the New Testament. This chapter is not the last word. We know that in the chapters ahead. Here in Isaiah itself, talks about this servant, right? There's this hope that's coming in the form of this suffering servant, a baby, the Messiah, who would bring light to those who are dwelling in darkness. Again, a lot of carryover from our past um, sermons and passages on Isaiah here. But this child, this baby, this Messiah, this servant would usher in the triumph of grace. This is why our series is called The Triumph of Grace in Isaiah. But he won't do that just as one more human savior. Israel and Judah had this long string of human saviors. And they didn't do a single thing. Instead, God's people need a Savior who will do it himself and what the people of God were incapable of doing. They need a Savior who would offer to God the obedience that they could not. And at the same time, bear this awful judgment that we see here. The judgment that they deserve and somehow change their hearts to produce this good fruit instead of this stink fruit that we hear about today. And that's the kind of fruit that God's been after all along. So with these in mind, let's look to the New Testament, right? So turn to John 15 here, our, uh, our passage this morning that we read. With Isaiah chapter 5 in the back of our minds here, let's read these again. The Messiah's words. When he says in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am, hey, here's one of his statements throughout the Gospels, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
Jesus says, I am the true vine. And this meaning would not have been lost of Jesus' hearers, Jewish hearers. They would have thought of passages like Isaiah chapter 5 and the numbers of other places throughout the law and the prophets, right? I know Jeremiah talks about the vine a lot, as well as Ezekiel touches on that as well. But Jesus is saying that he, I am, he is the true vine, as all of these prophets have been prophesying about in this vine. This is the same idea that we saw back in our Matthew series last year. Right? Jesus is the true Israel. Right? So uh, we see that throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus was who Israel was supposed to be. Jesus did what Israel was supposed to do and what Israel couldn't. You see that in Matthew 4, right? In, in the desert, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 uh, days and 40 nights, Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was the obedient, righteous son who reenacted this story that God had written and put into place through Israel, going to Egypt and back, passed through the waters, being tested, again, like I mentioned, for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, proving himself again and again to be this son, as Israel is described in the Old Testament. But Jesus is this son that Israel was supposed to be. And then Jesus, of course we know, went to the cross where he was bruised and crushed for our sins and transgressions. The sins of his people. Let me correct that statement. Bearing their guilt and God's judgment in their place. I'm looking to the cross because this is what we're going to remember this week, come Friday, and what we're going to celebrate the good news of the gospel on Sunday when he is risen. But now Jesus invites people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come and be a part of the people of God as we join ourselves to him by faith and as we abide in him, resting in his love and mercy and trusting in his words, then we will finally begin to bear good fruit and not distinct fruit that we hear about in Isaiah chapter 5 but rather the real fruit of real love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you hear these words, I hope you know where that is. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. God has never stopped caring about the fruitfulness of his people. It's not as if Jesus was perfect so that you don't have to be. Jesus became the true vine so that through him, we as the people of God could finally produce the fruit that he has sought all along. So let's let Isaiah point to us. Isaiah chapter 5. Let, let, let's let that passage point us to the true vine, which is Jesus. Let this vision of wickedness remind us today 
of who we could be apart from the true vine. Let this vision of judgment in Isaiah 5 remind us of what we deserve apart from the true vine. And let this vision of the rotten vine remind us about Christ, the true vine. So let this vision of Jesus lead us today to abide in him. Hour by hour, day by day. Let's give up on any attempt to make it through life on our own. This world tells us that you can do whatever you want. Again, as we've talked about in the service today, this all comes together. The world will tell us the opposite of what Jesus is telling us. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. So may these truths bring you and I here today. And as we go from here, as the grads are celebrated today, as they go to the different places, as we go back home to our workplaces, to our lives this week, may we rest in Jesus' love for us and trust in the words that he has given to us. In John 17, he says, uh, sorry, John 15, as we are in, verse 8, says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is God's will for our lives. These words here, that's God's will for us this week. For your Sunday afternoon here today, Monday morning, Friday night, as we meet back next week, whatever we do, let's abide in Jesus and so produce this fruit of righteousness that the Father seeks from his people. And so we end here today. I hope we're astounded by this message from God, from his word. I hope this is mind-blowing that we think about God's holiness and righteousness here. And we're going to sing that song again. Only a holy God. So as we sing, as we reflect on these words... Let's be amazed by God's holiness, his justice, and righteousness that he wouldn't give up on us. But he would give his very son to bring us to himself as we've seen here. So I'll give you a moment to be quiet here as we reflect on these things.